Welcome to the New Books Network. We walked in with tons of people and they were, um, it was like a parade. Everybody was so happy. There was singing. There were a lot of drums. A lot of people brought drums. Mm. And my experience of this was just, it was so vibrant. It was so global. I was astonished at the different countries represented, all the different flags that were waving. And, you know, it's something you hear in your catechism class. Catholic means universal. You're like, okay. But then when you really see, you know, uh, people from Nairobi, people from Vietnam, people from France, and people who are connecting over this, this love of God and this desire to see the Pope, it's really beautiful. Last month after World Youth Day in Portugal, I talked with theology professor Jane Sloan Peters about her experiences at World Youth Day in Toronto in Canada 20 years ago. She talks about that adventure and about the role of the young in our church and also in her life, for she's a young mother and a college professor on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Sudinitz, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions, and they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. My guest today is Jane Sloan Peters. She's a professor of religious studies at the College of Mount St. Vincent in Riverdale, New York, a college run by Elizabeth Seaton's Order of the Sisters of Charity. And she lives in Connecticut with her husband and two young sons. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Uh, would you like to start us off with a joke today? I know very few jokes, but this one is one that my two-year-old and my four-year-old always laugh at. So, um What's Beethoven's favorite fruit? <laughs> no idea. Banana. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Astor, I'm going to try that one today on my on my kids as well. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I know you because you often write for America Magazine, and then I recently, a few weeks ago, heard you talking about World Youth Day on on their podcast, and it was a delightful account, and I wanted to know more. But before we talk about World Youth Day, you referred in that piece to what you called your high school conversion, but you never told us about that, and you said that um, St. John Paul II was instrumental in that big event. Um, so would you like to tell us a little bit about your life and how you got to be such an ardent Catholic as a, as a teenager? An almost good Catholic. An almost good Catholic, that's right. Yeah, sure. I grew up in Indiana and was, you know, born into a Catholic family, baptized Catholic, and always had a really loving family, um, Sunday Mass. I remember especially my grandparents uh, were very faithful people. They would say the rosary on car trips. So if I ever got a chance to ride somewhere with them, they'd be saying the rosary and uh, they were very devout during mass. And I remember as a young person watching that. And then, you know, high school rolls around and it's kind of time to uh, make my own decisions a little more. And my faith is pretty much in the background. Um, and uh, a couple of things happened around this time. I would say my freshman, sophomore year of high school. One is that... Um, 
our parish hosted these huge retreats for young people and they were big and beautiful and vibrant. They were kind of modeled after the Youth 2000 retreats that the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal put on. And uh, they were very Eucharistic. So there was Eucharistic adoration. There was a chance for a blessing and a, a procession. So I was introduced in a new way to the Eucharist. And it's hard to say exactly why that was so captivating, but it was. And uh, I also picked up the catechism of the Catholic Church, which sounds super boring, maybe if you're not a theologian. But to me, it was really interesting. And reading about the faith there, sort of clearly laid out, was very compelling. And especially when I got to the sections on the moral life, I realized that the way that I was living my life was not in keeping with what was being articulated in the catechism. Uh, and that prompted a, a conversion. Just, uh, I wouldn't say, it, it prompted a conversion toward a deeper faith, a more committed faith. So I went to confession for the first time in a long time and uh, began to pay more attention in mass to read the scriptures a little more. And then sort of the other element of this conversion was that it was really nurtured by the community I was in. So my dad in particular was very active in the church. And I remember one Lent, he made it, uh, he made it his Lenten promise to go to daily mass. And so he and I did that in the mornings before school. And that was really, uh, really important for me and a good memory. And then I had several friends uh, from our public high school who were also Catholic and decided to go to daily mass together. So a lot of times in the morning, especially junior year, uh, my friend Heather would pick us up in her car. Uh, it would be me, Heather, Tanya, and Kristen. And then we would meet a bunch of our friends from another local public school at the morning mass at our church. So there were probably eight to 10 of us some mornings, you know, getting there at 6.30. And there was a lot of camaraderie. Uh, you know, those are still some friendships I really value. Mm -hmm. The woman who drove the car, Heather, she ended mm -hmm. up being a, a TOR sister at uh, a Franciscan sister at Steubenville. Wow, wow. Yeah, and then the rest of us ended up getting married and having kiddos. But um, I look back on that period really fondly. Mm -hmm. And I would say one challenging element was that I did experience some scrupulosity. And, you know, scrupulosity is this kind of obsession with whether a certain action is sinful or not. Um, and as a young person trying to get it all right, as an overachiever, you know, I, I found myself concerned about whether you know, my actions were in some way displeasing God and went through a period of time where um, I was pretty miserable. And so I don't want to paint the picture of conversion as all rosy. I think part of it was that I had to understand what God's mercy really is and to understand, too, my own free will and my choices. Um, and I think the beautiful thing is that I I passed through that period of scrupulosity within my faith, within the church. So sometimes I think the narrative in the culture is, uh, you know, you get told about sin and you feel bad about yourself. And then you have to free yourself from these notions that you're a sinful person 
in order to be okay with who you are. And that's worked for a lot of people. For me, it was that I began to understand what it means to be, say, a sinner um, and what it means to really rely on the mercy of God. Uh, and funnily enough, Alphonsus Liguori, who is an extremely legalistic you know, saint, uh, very rigorous in his moral theology, he's the one whose writings helped me out of that scrupulous period. Um, yeah, so that's that's to the high school. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful account. There's a few things in there that I identify with strongly. One is, I was not very ready for confirmation at the age of 14, and I also took my sweet time. But by the time I was 18, I was a much different person and and better prepared. So I wonder if we go too early. For another thing is that you had a community of friends, you know, and I think that that made it just a, where two or three are gathered, you know, that you and other young people, maybe that's what we're going to be talking about today is the power of young people as uh, in faith. And the third one is I completely agree with the strange narrative that, you know, there's guilty Catholics and you have to sort of recover from your guilt. And for me, I find the, um, the sacrament of confession extremely liberating because I can separate myself from my um, bad choices, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that we are not the sum of our errors, but that's not that's not where our de- identity rests. Um, that sc- scrupulosity, I think, is something people who don't really understand Catholicism uh, attach to us as a dismissal. Like, they don't want to take a second look. They don't want to um, sit for a minute and and find how much mercy and uh, liberation there there is in in the Catholic Church. So all of those things um, I I identify with, and thank thank you for sharing it. The one that strikes me is just the the idea that your sin is not you. When yeah. I teach my students Genesis chapter two and three, we talk about where's the good news here, and the good news is that creation was established and everything was good, and and that's who we are at our core, right? In need of God's grace, but created in every way, good, mm-hmm. and that sin is is not who we are. It's a missing of the mark. It's an aberration from who we really are deeply. So Yes, absolutely. And that the people are very good. And that when after the fall, the people are not cursed. God doesn't curse the people. God curses the serpent. Mm-hmm. And there is a curse on the land, but, but not on God's children. Mm. Uh, so, okay, let's talk about World Youth Day. So you went to Toronto with uh, John Paul II. Um, I did. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, I was going into my senior year. I have to say, I misspoke on the America podcast, and I told them I had. Gra- I, I told them it was, it was after my senior year, but yeah. it was actually before. Mm. And I'm just so old now; it all runs together. <laughs> um, but we got to go and. Right. How, how like, old are How old are your kids? And when's the last time you slept through the night? <laughs> oh man, <laughs> my kids are four and two, and I have not slept through the night in a while because yeah. my two year old is has been a little bit sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. John Paul II was important because he encouraged young people. And even in high school, that was the case. Uh, you know, those friends that I went to mass with, part of that was was brought on by, you know, listening to him encourage us to have a life of faith. Um, and so I was really excited to go see him. And I didn't really know what World Youth Day was exactly, but I knew I was going to get on a big tour bus with a bunch of friends and go from Indiana to Toronto, stopping for a second at the Shrine of the North American Martyrs, which is a beautiful Mm. shrine. 
And where is that? Uh, the shrine at Midland, Ontario. Yeah, which is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and so we made a stop there and then we headed to uh, the site for World Youth Day. And it was this enormous airfield. Um, we had to walk in. We walked in with tons of people and they were... Um, it was like a parade. Everybody was so happy. There was singing. There were a lot of drums. A lot of people brought drums. Mm. And my experience of this was just, it was so vibrant. It was so global. I was astonished at the different countries represented, all the different flags that were waving. And, you know, it's something you hear in your catechism class. Catholic means universal. You're like, okay. But then when you really see, you know, uh, people from Nairobi, people from Vietnam, people from France, and people who are connecting over this this love of God and this desire to see the Pope. It's really beautiful. So the conditions of World Youth Day were, I would say, more rustic than I expected. Uh, I, I believe in the description on our tour packet, it said something like, spend the night under the stars with the Pope. Or <laughs> <laughs> And... Uh, we were we were sleeping in rain. Um, it was it was pretty physically miserable, mm-hmm. and so that's definitely a memory I had. Um, and you told the story that your sleeping bag was not waterproof. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so my dad and I went together, and I just picked up a sleeping bag from somewhere in the house, and he went over to my high tech uncle and borrowed this nice waterproof <laughs> sleeping bag. So about two in the morning, I'm really mad at him, right? He's totally asleep. <laughs> my sleeping bag's completely wet. I, I lift my head up to look around and I see frogs jumping around amid the sleeping bags. So yeah. at that point, you just sort of have to laugh. Um, yeah. And, you know, there were some other beautiful parts of it too that I didn't really get to talk about on the America podcast. Yeah, let's hear it. Let's um, hear it. Well, one one thing that really stands out in my memory was this game people played called trash jumping. And uh, there's these enormous piles of trash, you know, so they set up these nice trash cans and they got completely full and overflowing. And people would line up on either side of the trash can and create sort of a, a runway. And then somebody would run and leap over the trash. And the goal was to, you know, clear the trash can on the other side. <laughs> This was a great game. And, you know, especially for people that didn't speak one another's language necessarily, Mm -hmm. we had so much fun with that. I never did it, but I I watched some people do it. And uh, yeah, I remember really liking that. And then um, the other thing that was meaningful, I thought, was that they they arranged the eating such that you would go get some food and then the food would be enough for a group of people, like seven to 10 people or something. So people had meals together. It wasn't like you each got your individual boxed lunch. You were sharing from these little, um, you know, these little Tupperwares, this this food. And so there was this this family aspect too. And I remember walking through the crowds, looking at, um, you know, these people from different countries sitting together and, and having their dinner in these little groups. And it reminded me of... Um, as I as I'm thinking of it now, it reminds me of the feeding of the five thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, when Christ has them sit down and sit down into groups, right, and and yeah. eat together. And uh, again, it's it's hard to say why exactly that is the thing I remember, but that's yeah, that's no. really meaningful to me. Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, it's we're I think we're unusual in that we're used to have everybody having their own utensils and their own containers and. In other yep. parts of the world, there just aren't that many containers. So you know, you you uh, you eat with your right hand, and you share out of a big bowl, and you wash your hands before, and 
that's just the way that's just the way people eat all around the world when you when you travel and mm-hmm. you know you sit on a bus traveling through west africa or through india and people are like here's some food and it would be weird not to share with the person sitting next to you on the bus but in the united states you got your own ziploc bag and your own sandwich and it would be weird to offer some of your sandwich to the neighbors yeah 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 and that kindness and openness is something that was really attractive to me and which I encountered again when I was a pilgrim on the Camino de Santiago in Spain. Mm. And uh, I, I just love it. No, so that's one of the things I would love to do probably when my kids go to college. Uh, is... Right. <laughs> when I was walking, I encountered an Australian family and they'd brought their kids. Kids were miserable. I felt so bad for them, but it's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a phenomenal experience. So did uh, so you you met a lot of folks. Was there did you have languages in common? Did everybody speak English or French, or did you get? How did you talk with people? Is this at World Youth Day or on the Camino? Uh, well, let's start with World Youth Day. Um, at World Youth Day, I didn't have a lot of direct interaction with people from other countries where I would need to have a conversation. It was a lot of facial expressions, a lot of just gestures of kindness, and then I stuck within my church group of forty or so people. Yeah, and trash um, jumping. <laughs> and trash jumping, yeah, which required only drums. There were drum circles too, lots of drum circles. Um, I did go to a confession with a priest um, from, I think, Ireland. You know, they have confession available and they, they uh-huh. tell you what language they speak. And so I did my confession and I didn't know where he was from. And the first thing he said to me is, you're a fine young lass. And I said, oh, really? Thank you. That sounds more Scottish, maybe. Irish. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so, but no, I didn't, um, I was, I was too young, I think, to really feel like I could just get to know people from other groups. Sure. And there was probably so many impressions and everything was happening. Uh, and on the Camino, do you speak Spanish? Did everybody speak Spanish on the Camino de Santiago? A lot of English. Lot of uh, English. So I, I do speak Spanish and that was very helpful going through the small towns. Uh, but there was a, a lot of the Europeans spoke English, um, I did have some funny interactions with some of the French pilgrims. Uh, one pilgrim in particular, Julia, she was uh, younger than I was at the time, probably about 18 and walking. And, you know, we hit it off and we're, we're talking. She played the violin. We're talking about music. I said, do you know the Beatles? She said, no, I don't. I don't know them. <laughs> and I said, Julia, the Beatles, you know. And so I started singing Can't Buy Me Love. And she goes, oh, the Beatles. <laughs> um, there were lots of funny things like that that happened yeah. uh, in the mixing of cultures. And yeah, being patient with one another and understanding mm-hmm. of one another. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is, I think, you know, I've been listening just to other people discuss the current World Youth Day here. I mean, the the youth day that just happened in Portugal uh, in 2023 and the emphasis on uh, just everybody, todos, todos, todos. Uh, mm. And the inclusion of people from all over, the, you know, obviously from all over the world, but, you know, e- people who belong even before they uh, subscribe to every point of the Catholic uh doctrine and and so on Mm. um and so i think one is the fact that we we really are all together all around the all around the world we're all the same and we forget that all the time because we hang out with our own little tribes in our own little spaces and then the the second thing i'm 
very interested about is how young people lead the way and how young people are the ones who have, I don't know, more capacity for 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 change and new ways of thinking and new ways of doing things. Because as we get caught up in our lives as adults and, uh, and, and so on, we sort of start to uh, become stuck in our stuck in our ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, you talked about belonging. And it reminds me of the, the quotation from the New Testament, you know, we love because he first loved us, that nothing we do is, is sui generis, everything's preceded by the grace of God or God's creative power. Um, and I think we see that with World Youth Day, you see um, the church opening up a space for people to come and experience the faith, encounter Christ, and uh, explore what it's like to really um, give your life to Jesus, to be part of a church. And I mean, the other thing to mention is is just that um, in terms of belonging, you know, World Youth Day is was at the time it was um, it was started by John Paul II uh, a revolutionary concept. Right. He, he wanted young people to be involved in the church and he saw a way to do that. And uh, he reached out to them in this way. And so, you know, gosh, I don't know how many years old it is when it was started at this point. Um, I think 1985 or six, something like that. So, yeah, like the year almost I was born. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it's been almost 40, 40 years. years. Yeah, yeah. Almost 40 years. And uh, and now it's, oh, yeah, another World Youth Day. But at the time it began. Right. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. The young people are coming together and they're excited. They're excited about this. Um, And yeah, I think you you talk about the youthful energy, the youthful possibility of innovation. I think in a certain way to see a young person, uh, especially in the classroom, is to see a mystery, to see, you know, the potential of a vocation. And I know sometimes I look at my sons and they'll do something and I'll think, who are you going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think of that with my students as well. Who are you going to be? And I see all the good things, uh, and and also all the, you know, threats to their happiness. I do think young people have something to teach us, in as much as they see the world with newer eyes, right? Um, my son George calls a crucifix an alleluia. And, you know, we correct him sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a crucifix. But his use of that word and his enthusiasm for seeing the alleluia Mm -hmm. is something that I've come to ponder. And it's something that's been instructive for me. Um, And then in class with my students, you know, um, I have certain things that I aim to teach them. And yet, I really need to meet them where they are, both in order to communicate uh, my my teaching goals, but also to learn sort of more about how they receive uh, the different things that I'm teaching, these different religious concepts. And it's that deeply personal interaction uh, of teaching that that I think kind of emulates the intimacy of Trinitarian life and the intimacy of you know, God's self-emptying love for us, right? When God listens to us, you know, when Jesus listens to the woman at the well, it's not because he doesn't know what she's about to say. It's because he loves her, right? Because he's preparing her heart for uh, what's to come. And so I think one danger 
is that we can fall into this idea that old people don't have much to tell young people because they're so set in their ways. Okay, boomer, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think it has to be, there has to be an intimacy and an empathy between um, young people and old people, really, in order to help each person grow, uh, in order to help the community flourish. A really good essay on this is uh, Toni Morrison's Nobel Prize speech. is a beautiful uh, retelling of a, of a story about a conversation between an old, wise, blind woman and a group of young people. And uh, I really like it. I've used it in class before. I have not read that. What is what does she say? Well, there's a there's kind of an old or there's a there's a common say parable where a, a young person comes to an old wise person and they have their hands behind their back and they say, "I have a bird in my hand. Is the bird living or dead?" And the the trick of the story is, you know, that if the wise person says the bird is living then the person can just kill the bird, right? But if the wise person says the bird is dead, then the young person will just let the bird fly away. So he's wrong. He's caught in a trap, right? And Toni Morrison takes that story and turns it into a longer conversation about the ways that older generations have, you know, failed young people. Um, I don't want to say it quite that way. She takes it into a bigger conversation about the frailty of human conversation and relationships and the way that uh, speech is this risky thing that we do. She talks about the fraught nature of human speech. The conversation evolves and it's not that the it's not that the young people are just kind of jerks, but it's that they feel they've been wounded and they haven't uh, that the older people haven't passed down uh, the important things to them. And it's not that the old person uh, is just this wise sage. It's also that the old person is afraid of the young person. In this story, it's an old blind woman and a group of young people. It's this idea that speech, which can be a weapon, which can be um, a way to hurt someone, which can be a way to conceal the truth, can also be the very means by which we connect to one another. And there's no way around the fact that we must speak to one another. And that's where you get her famous quote, we die, that may be the meaning of our lives, but we do language, that may be the measure of our lives. I don't know if you've heard that before, but- I I haven't, I'm I'm gonna go read this. (laughs) Yeah, it's really nice. And you know, it's uh, since it's the Nobel Prize address, you can find it on YouTube too, listen to her. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and we live our life in seasons. We mercifully we are passing from here to eternity we are not going to be around for a very long time one of the most um, probably the most important thing we ever have is kids um you have two kids i have four kids and for me that's by far been the most important thing i do and i sort of you know we encounter people who are I mean, I don't know how often, but there's an idea, maybe it exists on in media, people trying to stay young, people trying to preserve themselves. And there's some, you know, there it's when somebody's doing something in the wrong season, it 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 loses its beauty and it becomes something a little more artificial or or sometimes even grotesque and so on. And we have we're surrounded by, you know, young people trying to be old people, old people trying to be young people, all that sort of thing. And 
And one thing you said in talking with Father Ricardo was that you learned at Youth Day that you're you're not destined for mediocrity. God has real purposes for you, and perhaps the most important ones are changing diapers, which I I feel that way too, you know. And I I've, I use changing diapers especially for Saint Saint Therese of Lisieux and and the Little Way, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So tell t- tell us about what you learned as a mother. Then I'd also like to talk about your relationship with our mother, Our Lady, mm. the Virgin Mary. Sure. You're talking about diapers and changing. and Yes, exactly. Sort of Therese of Lisieux, which is yeah. perfect, yeah. right? I think being a mother and just being a parent in general gives you this kind of inner experience of divine love. Mm. And it's it's pretty amazing that God allows allows humans to love as he loves and to experience what it's like to have kind of an unconditional love for someone. So all the time when I'm with my boys, I don't want to say all the time, many times when I'm with my boys <laughs> and they do something and, you know, it could be whatever. Right now, my son, who's four, he goes around the house going, oh, great heavens. And the <laughs> two-year-old is following him going, oh, great lemons. And uh, it's just, it's completely absurd. And it yeah. elicits such a delight in me. Yeah. And even the things that they don't do well yet, elicit such a delight in me. And that's that's really instructive too in terms of how God sees us. So as my two-year-old learns to talk um, or as my four-year-old learns to ride his scooter, I feel such great love for them. And I think, you know, is that how God loves me? And it allows me to be so much more patient with myself and to really bring things to God and particularly to Our Lady Uh, to bring my imperfections and my fears and things. Because as a mom, I never receive my kids' fears or imperfections or uh, desires with contempt, frustration maybe, but never contempt. And that's how God loves us. And to be a parent is to experience that. And then on the other hand, to be a parent is to experience the failure of loving like God, right? And that happens all the time as well. Um, and I won't bore you with those stories, but uh, <laughs> but I think there's that too, that to say there is a way that there is a more perfect way to love in this situation and to sort of be in a place where you're kind of seeing it from God's eyes. You're kind of seeing yourself uh, in God's shoes, so to speak. Uh, I think one theological concept that I think about a lot in being a mom is this idea of divine condescension. So in um, Philippians, you know, St. Paul has that beautiful hymn that Christ, you know, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And this idea of Christ emptying himself is what uh, what we talk about when we say in English condescension. In Greek, it's synkatabasis. It's a little more accurate, but we say condescension. And, you know, it's not a negative idea that we're being condescending, but that we're coming down to someone else's level. And so much of parenting is learning what that's like. And I remember when I was potty training my first kid, uh, John was two and a half. I was pregnant with George, really sick, you know, morning sick, on the floor of the bathroom. John's, you know, refusing to go to the bathroom or, you know, peeing in different places around the house. (laughs) And 
I'm just angry, right? I'm yeah. like, I and and the thought that came to my mind was, I've done this before. I already know how to go to the bathroom. Why do I have to teach this kid to go to the yeah. bathroom? That was my kind of my my thought. But at the same time, I was working on John Chrysostom and his exegesis, and he's really big into divine condescension and sort of the Lord coming down and doing things not for his own sake, but for our sake. Yeah. You know, eating food, suffering speaking to us, asking us questions. And so it was it was a great moment where my theological work and my work as a mom kind of came together to challenge me uh, <laughs> to, to think more deeply in both areas. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, oh, that's so wonderful. And um, it really gets to the heart of everything, which is relationship. Why would God need to create in the first place? Like, what mm-hmm. what's the whole point of this uh plane where we all exist and we have to learn the same lessons over and over again. And I don't think God is bored of it. I don't think he's tired of our nonsense. And I don't think he's going to lose patience anytime soon. Uh, I don't remember where, but C.S. Lewis has this idea that every time we fall short and fail at something, it's like a toddler falling over in God's God's eyes. And he picks us back up and he says, okay, try again. Okay, Mm -hmm. try again. Mm -hmm. And it's challenging to think of one's own failings yeah. with that tenderness, um, even though it comes so naturally, I think, for a, a parent to child relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that has been a great spiritual challenge since becoming a mom. Yeah. In your essay about um, Ukraine uh, and and Russia and Our Lady of Fatima, you make the observation that it turns out that moving your thumb along a decade of rosary beads feels a lot like scrolling through a news feed and that yeah. you discovered that you were reaching for your rosary more and more, you know, as we see all the horrors of politics and war and so on. What is it about the rosary? I, you know, I have a rosary in my pocket in, as I'm teaching or as I'm driving or what, what is it about that tactile? It's almost like holding hands with Mary. What, mm. what, what how does the rosary work for you? Yeah. I'd say that I'm not a person who says the rosary daily, but I I definitely go to it in times of distress. And why is it that I do that? It's kind of just, it's it's having something to do with my hands. Mm-hmm. And I think people, when when they are worried about something, you know, they, they kind of want something to do. And I found myself in, especially at the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Um, through my friends' reactions to it, uh, different videos of people on Instagram who were uh, condemning the invasion. And I thought, why am I doing this when, you know, when, when I could be using my fingers in a very similar way? That kind of habitual movement, kind of self-soothing movement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think for me, the challenge became, what's the difference between scrolling through my Facebook feed and praying the rosary. You know, I don't have control over Russia's invasion of Ukraine in either situation. I feel completely helpless and upset. Uh, But do I believe that my prayer is meritorious? You know, do I believe that asking Mary's intercession is effective? Um, Do I believe that, you know, Mary is someone who people can go to for comfort and, and that these things that prayer really has transformative power. That was kind of the challenge for me was, what can I do? Well, I can't do much at all. 
it reminded me a little bit of how when a mom is really busy with stuff and just really needs to get things done, she gives her kids a busy activity, uh-huh. right? <laughs> like, oh man, I have to make dinner. So I'm going to lay out all these pots and pans on the floor and give my kid a spoon and just be like, <laughs> yeah, you, you bang those pots and pans. That's so great. Right. And they're completely focused. They think they're doing this really important thing. And yeah. it, the rosary kind of reminds me of that. It's kind of like Mary going here, you just do this and I'll, I'll be over here working. So, but there's also an aspect of you know when you're walking along and your kid just comes up beside you and just holds your hand, you know. Mm-hmm. That's so I don't know why that vanishes uh, as we get older. Uh, maybe between like it's also sweet to see older couples holding hands as they're walking around the pond or whatever. But uh, there's something about kids wanting to hold our hands um, that's lovely. That's lovely, and that reminds us what's important as we are distracted by all the things we think are important that really are not. Absolutely. Kids do remind you what's most important. Another thing that you write about is your wish to see room for women in our national discourse who have a more nuanced version of feminism than the one solitary, monolithic approved one. Uh, You write that 38% of women in America are opposed to abortion in many cases, and even 30% of Democrats disagree with the abortion plank in the party platform as it exists. You wrote a beautiful essay where you contemplate the uh, hearings for Justice Amy Coney Barrett that I had not thought about as it was happening. I, I, I just, I don't know, I wasn't thinking about that. And then early this morning, I didn't write you this in the email, but early this morning, I read your essay about the Women's March from 2017, about how they deliberately excluded women who were uh, new wave feminists, women who were for women, but not for abortion in all in all cases and for all reasons. And uh, what do you think about that? It feels like a third of the women are being are being dismissed out of out of hand, and it feels like it's extremely important. The Women's March on Washington was the first place that I noticed the hostility in the polarity between women who were anti-abortion and pro-abortion. Um, and of course, Donald Trump had just been elected, so it was more than about abortion, right? It was about women's rights and respecting women. Um, and a friend of mine designed a poster for the Atlanta March the Atlanta Women's March, and it was a big boot. And underneath the boot was a cockroach on its back. And on the cockroach, it said, anti-abortion. And I remember seeing that and being really struck that something that I found really important, which is women's rights and treating women with dignity, uh, was, was so contemptuous toward an anti-abortion stance. Um, And the reality is things are much more nuanced, right? Um, Many women who consider themselves feminists are not pro-abortion in all cases. Um, They may not be completely anti-abortion, right? But but there's much more nuance to the discussion than is represented by uh, certainly the political parties and often uh, the media as well. you had mentioned the article I wrote, and I looked up some current statistics because I wondered how much this had changed. And hmm. it, it has changed since Dobbs. So people who are Democrat or lean Democrat, uh, 84% believe abortion should be legal in uh, most cases. And that number has gone up since Dobbs, uh, whereas the Republican number has stayed about the same. Uh, so I think you see the polarization there. 
you see that people are reacting to, uh, you know, reacting to the Supreme Court decision, which they think isn't, you know, impinging on their freedom. Um, so, so I would say the the climate is a little more hostile. Mm-hmm. Um, and the new wave feminists, I should mention, you know, the issue with the new wave feminists, which was that they applied for, you know, official status uh, as part of the Women's March on Washington. And they were initially granted this status. And then after it came to light that this was an anti-abortion organization, uh, it wasn't religious, it was just anti-abortion, secular, um, they were denied um, official participation. And um, so that was, you know, that was another thing that kind of alerted me to the the hostility, the polarity. but I think, you know, for me, it, what it comes down to is having the conversation and having a place for women who do not uh, conform to the broader culture and political narrative, really on either side, um, if you're talking about liberal or conservative, yeah. about um, abortion issues and, and similar issues. Um, I wanted to mention, if it's okay with you, I wanted mm-hmm. to mention a few groups that or a few people that I think are doing great work on this, you know, getting dialogue started uh, and also refusing to assimilate with a kind of simplistic narrative uh, about the question of abortion. And one is the New Wave Feminist, which is still around, you know, um, Destiny Herndon De La Rosa is an amazing woman. The organization is a secular organization, um, but she's done quite a bit for women. And, and her, her most recent thing is called the Stellar Shelter, which is uh, a house for women and mothers as they are down on the border, as they wait for ruling on their asylum cases. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's near or in Juarez. I, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it serves women and their children. Um and, uh, you know, Erica Bakayoki is um, uh, a scholar who wrote a book recently that was very provocative. It was called The Rights of Women. And in it, she tries to uh, kind of reshape the conversation of abortion from a question of rights to a question of duties. And she critiques free market capitalism for, in certain ways, making abortion a more compelling solution. And then there's, there's Abigail Favale, who was a feminist scholar and uh, converted to Catholicism and found herself very confronted by the question of abortion. And she has a piece, uh, Confessions of a Feminist Heretic, where she talks about that Mm. journey from being really pro-abortion to anti-abortion. And then I think uh, at Notre Dame, the McGrath Institute, uh, the Office of Life and Human Dignity is doing great things. Uh, So Jessica Keating Floyd, you know, is is having is is sponsoring sort of conversations about these mm. things, um, and uh, my favorite, the Sisters of Life, because you know what they're doing it. They're not just talking about it, right? Um, the Sisters of Life, you know, they were founded to to uphold the dignity of life. And several times I've been to their their house for women on the um, on the west side. Uh, a place where women can go when they're pregnant and after they've had the baby um, to have some support. And it's, it's just beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's another lesson too, is you don't have to have the, the argument all worked out in your own head. You don't have to have somebody else convinced of your argument just in order to do something for women who are vulnerable. Um, And uh, that's, 
that's something that I wish more people knew and acted on. Yeah, no, that's yeah. such a good point because I'm sure while people will strongly disagree with the last, the the, the last thing they're holding on to as their you know foundational opinion, there's probably ninety percent of the territory that they can all agree on that poor women who don't want to have an abortion should have resources and help. I think everybody would agree with like, let's make it easier to adopt a child to take care of a poor woman who might be all by herself and might be pregnant. Like everybody can agree with that. And so why don't we start with a 90% that overlaps and do what we can to love each other skillfully. And we can leave that last point Maybe it'll even become irrelevant. Yeah, well, there's that phrase. Yeah, make make abortion irrelevant is a phrase that's used, or make abortion unthinkable is a phrase that didn't know that. That's yeah, yeah. that's yeah. I strongly agree with that. And I thank you for for sharing those names because now I have uh, future guest ideas. <laughs> yeah, people to email. Um, yeah, yeah. My last question that I thought I don't know if you want to take this one on is what are the kids like at, that you teach? You know the young people that you that you teach. Were, I know that your articles are very scholarly about patristics, but I bet you most of your work is much more introductory. Well, I, I'm so happy to talk about my students. I love yeah. my students. They're they're so wonderful, and I feel so grateful that I'm able to do something with the degree that I obtained. You know, when mm. I, when I was getting my PhD, it was always kind of a question. Am I going to actually be able to use this? And when I first started studying theology, I had a mentor, uh, Gary Anderson, who's a professor at Notre Dame. And he said, you know, only do this if at the very end you could be happy that you've done it, even though you don't get a job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, okay. And that was the mentality going in. And then as as my degree finished up, I was really confronted with that reality. And then, and then this job came along and I get to go talk about, you know, religion, uh, and, and theology with these students who are in, you know, a, um, required class, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it's wonderful. And, yeah. you know, Mount St. Vincent where I teach is wonderful. It was founded by the sisters of charity, right? Elizabeth Ann Seton's order. Um, started as a school for girls and then uh today is a is a college undergraduate college and they say in their in their you know mission statement that they they are authentically inclusive and i think they really live that out um so the students that i have uh many of them are from the area from the bronx a lot of first generation students um and then the mount has programs to help these students um, especially ones who may be more vulnerable about who do want a college degree. So one of the programs at the school is called the Bridge Program, and it's for students with certain learning needs, like those on the autism spectrum or those with Down syndrome. And these students can come and take college classes either for credit or audit and have a college experience. I, I had one of these students in my class, and on the first day of class, I ask people, what does the word religion make you think of? And all kinds of all kinds of answers. But this particular gentleman raised his hands. He says, I ring the bells at mass. Yeah. And it was so beautiful. Yeah. It was so concrete and uh and so unique. And it brought this this new perspective into the classroom. Uh another program is the uh the Mott Street scholarship. So 
The Mount gives scholarships to people who are coming from situations of homelessness or foster care. And, uh, you know, they live on campus. And then even after they graduate, they get a little bit of help kind of starting out in the world. I think that's just phenomenal. Um, the Mount also has a program for students who show potential to succeed in a college setting, but might have uh, low test scores or low high school grades. And they say, okay, we see you, we're gonna give you a chance. And that's what I think is sort of the bottom line with a lot of my students is they need someone to take a chance on them. And I know how that is, mm-hmm. you know, because um, um, there are various times in my life and education that I've needed someone to say, you know, you haven't produced anything yet, but mm-hmm. I'm going to take a chance on you. Um, so I absolutely love it. And, yeah. you know, it's it's completely in the Vincentian tradition as well uh, of St. Vincent de Paul. And uh, yeah, and, and my students are wonderful. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm very happy in that in that role too. I teach at a tiny secondary school and I have, you know, little little ones who are just getting into high school and I have kids who are about to be in college and they take my psychology or political science class and it's really you can see the grown-ups they are already as they you know yeah. as they take their first steps into the you know as they go off to school and stuff like that. So that it's a real privilege. To, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about sort of seeing potential in young people, thinking yeah. kind of what what will you become? You can see you know you can see the love God already has for them, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a very pastoral role. And then there's, it's Mm -hmm. also a time warp because I'm getting older every year and the kids are always the same age. (laughs) What is that about? I know. (laughs) But my children are getting older so fast. And I'm, I know that doesn't sound right to you, but before you know it, they'll be off riding bicycles and off in high school and off in college. And you'll be like, where did those guys go? (laughs) People always say that, you know, they always say, enjoy every minute. Like my kid could be on my lap crying and throwing up. And some (laughs) mom would come up and be like, I remember those days. You enjoy every minute. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's true though. It sounds like you teach a lot of different subjects. Yeah. It's a, it's a small school. So I, I'm, I am one third of our social studies department. And even though I'm a historian, I actually don't teach any history (laughs) this year. So so I'm working to turn my dissertation into a book, but I also teach the other social studies. So it's so fun. It's so fun. And especially the last few years I've been teaching psychology. It's a new subject for me. So I'm teaching myself and Mm -hmm. it's such a privilege to, you know, to come to something with a beginner's mind and try to do it well and get into a whole big world. Um, I love that about teaching too. Yeah. I, I developed a course last semester called Letters from Prison, where I just uh-huh. assembled a bunch of literature that people wrote from prison. So yeah. we started with Felicity and Perpetua uh, and, you know, read Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail and Franz Jagerstadter's letters to his wife um, and, and lots of other things. And it was so personally satisfying to put that together and to learn all that. And then also the the students really responded well. I was worried about how it would go because the everything was so concrete and, and narrative. And I thought, am I really going to be able to teach theological concepts, religious concepts through these 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 letters? And they they got it. It was great. Yeah. Well, that's what Jesus did. <laughs> everything, you know, where the yeah. everything has to touch 
Everything has to touch yeah. something concrete and be a real thing at a real time and place. That's the divine condescension, self-emptying. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that is a perfect full circle place to stop. Um, and so, Jane, would you uh, pray for us or give us a blessing for, for our listeners and their families and the Ukraine and the world and everybody everywhere? Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about this and... I think because this is a podcast and people are likely listening on computers or phones, I want to pray specifically for just the the virtuous and intentional use of technology mm. among people of faith. And um, I want to pray that the concerns that people feel and the fears they feel when they see uh, so much distressing content in the world today, whether it's Ukraine or um, or violence in other places, just that they're able to um, trust in the merit of prayer and also that they find the fortitude to uh, go out into the world and live so as to make these things unthinkable uh, in their own lives. Um, we pray especially for Mary's intercession. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Chris Odinitz and Jane Sloan Peters recorded this conversation, episode 70, on August 23rd, 2023. This was the feast day of St. Rose of Lima, who was the daughter of a cavalier in Peru at the turn of the 17th century. Though beautiful and eligible, she insisted on a life of virginity and poverty and service to the poor and sick, finally becoming a Dominican tertiary. And she died at the age of 31, perhaps because of her intense mortifications, perhaps because she was one of those souls who came into this world with her eyes fixed on the next one. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band, and their website is www.gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz. Please email me with comments, questions, ideas for future episodes at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every email. And I thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. I just want to add that we were talking so much about Ukraine earlier, but that's because it was this. we recorded this in August when that was preeminent in our minds. Now it's October. We are praying for our brothers and sisters in Israel and in Palestine, as well as Ukraine, and anywhere where there is suffering and injustice. Uh, Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds God and angels sing